Well, good evening and thanks for joining us. I just first have to say there's been a slight change in the title as of this afternoon, but uh, uh, I hope you'll understand that as we go through that. So we're really looking at the question from 1 Samuel chapter 14 and 15 of why King Saul failed as a king. Now, if we were to read the full passage, uh, there'd only be time for me to wish you all a very good evening and a good week. So instead of that, I'm just going to read the very opening of the passage and the closing of the passage. So let's look at 1 Samuel 14 and just verse 1. Last week, you may remember that John gave us a great uh, introduction to the events that we're going to be looking at, the battle, the looming battle with the Philistines. And so, uh, chapter 14 opens, One day Jonathan, son of Saul, said to his young armor-bearer, Come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Each of these little phrases is quite telling, as we'll see. And then look at the very end of chapter 15, verses 34 and 35. After the battles, then Samuel left for Ramah, but Saul went up to his home in Gebeah of Saul. Until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again, though Samuel mourned for him. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. <clears throat> and it's that last phrase that we want to ask, why? Why did the Lord regret that he had made Saul king over Israel? So one of the key issues which we'll be thinking about this evening is the whole subject of leadership or more specifically, the failure of a particular type of leader who is illustrated by King Saul. Now, before I, I get into Saul's failures, I, I need to say that Saul had many good qualities uh, as a leader. Indeed, in some ways, he was very successful, particularly in his earlier days. He achieved quite a lot. He uh, led Israel to overcome many of their enemies and under his leadership, uh, Israel developed an identity among the surrounding nations. But as time went on, some fatal flaws began to appear in him as a leader. The cracks in Saul's character began to show, particularly when he was put under stress. Now, although this happened nearly 3,000 years ago, it's still very up-to-date and very practical. Let me give you two uh, reasons why it's particularly important for us today. Firstly, some of you may be in positions of leadership even now, okay, perhaps in your work, uh, or it may be that as your career develops, you will end up in a position of responsibility. Perhaps you have a team under you, uh, and generally, if you've had some way successful in your career, you will end up having to manage people. And the whole question of leadership and leadership style will then be very relevant. Not even in business, but even in family. The question of showing leadership in a family is 
very relevant. And that's something that some of you may have experienced and the tensions that come with that. We see it, of course, in politics uh, when people are leading a whole nation, sometimes a very large nation. What leadership style should they have and are there problems with that? And what are the warning signs if you're going to end up in a position of leadership? What are the warning signs that you should look out for in your own personality, in your own reactions, that will tell you that you may be in danger of going off the rails as a leader? But also, I would like, particularly those of us who are Christians, to think about the question of leadership in the Christian world. Because the track record of leadership in the Christian world is tragically bad. Many popular so-called leaders in the Christian world have a terrible track record. Let me just mention, uh, if I'm not too unkind, but two very public recent failures which have made it to the Christian news. There's a, there's a church in the United States, the Mars Hill Church, and here's a, an extract from the Christian News uh, website, Christianity Today, just giving a very brief summary of this church. It said, founded in 1996, Seattle's Mars Hill Church was poised to be an influential, undeniable force if in evangelicalism. That is, until its spiraling collapse in 2014. The church and its charismatic founder, Mark Driscoll, had a promising start, but the perils of power, conflict, and Christian celebrity eroded and eventually shipwrecked both the preacher and his multi-million dollar platform. And in case you're thinking, oh, that's only, it only happens in America, there's uh, another uh, even more recent movement in the United Kingdom called the Crowded House Movement. It was a new church movement in England started by an energetic but controlling personality. He was praised as an, this was praised as an exciting new movement and the leader, Steve Timmis, was lauded by many Christians as a man of great vision, a dynamic leader. The movement was regarded as the next big thing but invariably, in the Christian world, the next big thing usually ends in a big disaster. And it happened in this case. There was an independent report, an independent organization was called in to analyze the problems. And here's a summary from that report. It's available on the internet uh, uh, and it's in the public domain. And this is about this great leader. While there are things to admire about Steve Timmis and his ministry, there are also concerns about his leadership style. These center around a lack of accountability and a need for personal control over every aspect of church life that some participants in the review experienced as coercive, overly controlling, and stunting rather than enabling. Now you're maybe beginning to get a picture of where leadership in the Christian world can start to go wrong. And Christians who are generally, well, well-meaning, but very naive when it comes to accepting the leadership of people who develop a power complex. We need to learn from Scripture the early warning signs. And so this case study of Saul, 
who was the first king of God's people, Israel. It's uh, very important for Christians today. I'm afraid in my old age, having seen this sort of thing happen so many times, uh, and even uh, us as a church having been urged to follow and to copy such dynamic leaders, if you hear of an exciting new church which is attracting big numbers and has a dynamic leader, a bit of advice, avoid it like the plague. And certainly do not copy it. That's just a personal advice. I hope you'll forgive me. So, briefly then, the plan for this evening. Rather than read the whole passage, I think, though, we do need to review the story of it. And for chapters 14 and 15 describe two battles. In chapter 14, we get the culmination of the battle against the Philistines. And then in chapter 15, we get the battle against the Amalekites. Then I'd like to look at how this passage paints a picture of Saul's leadership and its gradual failure. Then, linked with that, is the parallel failure of Saul's relationship with God. And we may see, maybe see why those are connected. And finally, rather than end on a note of failure, uh, we'll take a, li a little look forward and look at God's model for good leadership. So first of all then, an overview of these. First of all, the battle against the Philistines. The Philistines, as John showed us last week, were divided from the Israelites by a valley. The Philistines on one side and Saul and his rather small army on the other. The Philistines had spread out, sent out three raiding parties, set up three posts, in Israel's territory. Israel's leadership was Saul and his son Jonathan. That's the leadership team. Saul was with the main force, and Jonathan in this story took the initiative just with his personal assistant, but without Saul knowing it. And so Jonathan and his young armor bearer went down the valley and approached one of the Philistine outposts as they climbed up the craggy uh, incline. Jonathan attacked this outpost of the Philistines and caused panic. I think what happened was uh, the Philistine outpost, those who survived it, rushed back to their headquarters. The headquarters saw this group of armed soldiers rushing towards them, thought it was the Israelites, and so they attacked them. And there ended up a huge panic with the Philistines fighting each other. And uh, so the Israelites at that stage didn't have to get involved in that. But uh, as they were fighting each other, the opportunity for victory was there, and it just needed Saul's army to mop up, to come in, and to seal the victory. Now, before Saul launched into this, he saw it from a distance. He didn't know what was happening, and so he thought, I'll ask God for guidance. And so he called the priest over and the Ark of the Covenant. But then he saw a bit more of what was happening and felt, I should do something here. He didn't wait for God. He said to the priest, withdraw your hand. We haven't time for that. I have a better plan than what God could give us. And so uh, he, forced, he drove his army in. Now, it was hard work. His army didn't have weapons, or at least not the sort of weapons that the Philistines had. 
And Saul pressed his own army. In fact, he said, if anybody eats before we have completed this battle, if you eat anything, there's a curse on you. And that meant the threat of death. So his soldiers became exhausted. Now, meanwhile, Jonathan didn't know about what Saul had said about this curse. And he came across some honey as he was exhausted himself. And he ate the honey and had renewed energy for following up the battle. After that first phase, during the night, Saul proposed to have a second attack to continue to attack the Philistines while they were on the run. The priest said, should you not ask God first? So Saul decided, yes, I'll ask God again. And God didn't answer. Now, it's not surprising to us. Saul had, hadn't even waited to hear God's answer before. So what's the point of God speaking to him and giving him guidance? But Saul interpreted this as a result of the curse that he had put people on. Under. So he assumed that somebody had done something wrong, and it was found to be Jonathan. And Saul was prepared to have Jonathan put to death. He was afraid that if he relaxed his threat to his army, he would be accused of favoritism and somehow he would lose his grip on power over his army. So he said, right, Jonathan, I have to put you to death. And at that point, his army intervened and said to Saul, there's no way you can put Jonathan to death. He was the one who brought about the victory. And Saul, for the first time in his life, was forced to obey the army. And that, as we'll see, was a turning point in Saul's leadership. He now felt he was in the hands of the army. Then, um, the Second battle was the battle against the Amalekites. Now, the Amalekites were really evil force, a, a thorn in Israel's side and in the side of other nations in that area. If you think of, if you know, in the, what's going on in Africa at the minute, that group called the Lord's Army, terrorists who massacre all around them, who seem rather mindless, but just out to kill and to destroy. That's the sort of group that the Amalekites had always been. And their evil had reached such an extent that God said, now they need to be dealt with. <clears throat> uh, and God commanded Saul to fight the Amalekites. Uh, I should have said, just going back to the story of the Philistines, that whenever the Israelite army came upon the Philistines' supplies, the animals and so on and the food, they were so hungry that they ate the meat without uh, draining the blood from it. And that in Israel was a terrible thing to do. So, but Saul had driven them to do it by his extreme discipline on them. So they broke one of their fundamental laws. They ate, uh, killed the animals and ate the meat with the blood still in it. And to try to stop that, it says that Saul built an altar. And he said, look, come and we'll do this right. I'll be the priest. Bring the animals, we'll drain the blood from the animals, and then you can eat it. There's a very telling phrase that says, this was the first time Saul had built an altar. So it suggests, first of all, it was a big step for him to do this. And secondly, it wasn't the last time 
and he built an altar. So he was gradually taking over even religious functions as king. And because Israel had lost their discipline in, particularly in dealing with the plunder that they gained when they had a victory, God was going to try to restore that sense of discipline. And so in this particular case, incident, God said, all the plunder from the Amalekites must be given completely to God. This wasn't uh, being mean. It was trying to reestablish a sense of discipline in handling the success which Israel was going to have. But the army didn't listen, and indeed Saul joined them in taking the plunder, and part of his share was the king of the Amalekites, a really evil man. But generals in an army do not kill the opposition generals. There's a gentleman's agreement uh, about that. And so Saul did not kill the king, of Ag, uh, the king of the Amalekites, despite the word of the Lord saying, you have to uh, nip this evil in the bud. <clears throat> and he kept Agag as his own sort of personal trophy. Then Samuel came. And when Samuel saw that Saul had allowed the army to take the best of the plunder for themselves, they did offer to God all the useless things, the, uh, the, the weak and pathetic things that they didn't want. They give the leftovers to God. And when Samuel saw this, and he said to Saul, you have rejected the word of the Lord, and so the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. And that is the climax of that second battle. It is interesting that Saul, who had been prepared to kill his own son Jonathan in the interest of discipline, had changed. Something had changed Saul, uh, in this, particularly in this second battle, because now he spared his enemy, the king of the Amalekites. And uh, Saul says when Samuel challenged him, first of all, he was full of religious talk. He says, but we have offered something to the Lord. We have sacrificed it. But uh, when Samuel pressed him about his disobedience, he admits it. He said, I was afraid of the men, and so I gave in to them. And when Samuel was going to walk away, Saul's controlling instinct came to the surface again, and he grabbed Saul and used physical force to try to drag Samuel back to the camp. So hard did he pull Samuel that he tore Samuel's uh, coat. You need some force. You need to be using some violence force, violent force to achieve that. But the old control instinct of Saul uh, came to the surface again, and he tried to control even Samuel. So now let me just go through and draw some lessons from this, particularly on Saul's leadership, his style of leadership, and its gradual failure. First of all, you're probably getting the picture that Saul ruled by control, using threats and using this curse. And the threat was the threat of death. Even if they ate something when they were starving, he wanted to squeeze the last drop of commitment out of every single soldier at the pain of death. I don't know if you've ever served under a boss like that. It's not very pleasant. But that was his controlling instinct. The other, the next thing we read right at the very start was, 
In the leadership team, if I could call that, of Saul and Jonathan, there was no communication. Saul did not discuss with Jonathan. Saul was not a team player. And that's a feature of controllers, uh, controlling type of leaders. They, only, they, they can't share, if you like, power with people. They may have a leadership team, as those two churches that I mentioned at the start had, but the leadership meetings are the leader at the top telling the other so-called leadership team what is going to happen. No discussion. No uh, uh, considering of alternatives. His leadership style produced a slave mentality. Now, we didn't have time to read this, but there's a very interesting feature of these two chapters. That whenever Saul and Jonathan said, we're going to do something, his army, the soldier said, well, do whatever seems best to you. Now, is that a good response? Some of you have been chairing board meetings, and if you put forward a suggestion and everybody just says, well, if that's what you think, we'll do that. Whatever you think is best. You end up having a team of slaves, and you just rubber stamp things. That's not what a good leader should produce. And the problem with a controller uh, type of leader is that it produces a slave mentality. If you treat people as slaves by commanding them what to do, that's what you get. When it came to the question of Jonathan and disciplining Jonathan, Saul feared that relaxing discipline over Jonathan would loosen his control over the army. But by going to such unreasonable and extreme lengths in, in, in applying discipline, Saul eventually was forced by his own army to backtrack. And because he had been forced to backtrack, he felt that he had lost his authority, lost his grip over the army. It wasn't that he had, but he felt that he was now, that this was the start of losing control. And this was the start of a change in Saul's leadership style. And after losing his power, or thinking that he had lost power to control the army, he had to adopt a different leadership approach. He adopted two approaches, as we'll see. The first was that he started to give in to them whatever they wanted. He said, I was afraid of the men, and so I gave in to them. You've met other leaders, I'm sure, and all that they do is to keep the support of people, they give them whatever they want. In a political party, if there's a movement in the grassroots to do something, the leader suddenly decides that this is what he had always wanted to do all along anyway. He did anything just to try to stay a little in front of the army, but just to hold on to power. So that's the first change in his leadership style. Now let's look at the failure of his relationship with God. And this is important because God was interested in making Saul a good king. How do you work with someone who has tendencies towards being a control freak? Is there any hope for them? Well, God had a strategy for that. And that's why it was important for Saul to have a relationship with God. We've seen that right from early stages, Saul did not wait for guidance from God. He asked for it when he was out of ideas himself, but he didn't wait for it. He applied his own ideas. Who was in charge of the strategy? Obviously, Saul felt his ideas 
were better than God's. It's interesting, while he was able to give orders, so he would not obey God's orders, particularly in the second battle where Samuel had said to Saul, you must make sure that all the plunder is committed to God. Saul did not obey that. Even the king uh, of the Amalekites, Saul did not put him uh, to death as he had been commanded to. And so Saul was good at giving orders, and God gave him an order as an opportunity to curb his control instinct. It was a good thing that God did to try to put limits on his natural personality of control. And God gave him an order. There's a, a Roman centurion in the New Testament who met the Lord Jesus, and he described his own attitude. A military man, he says, I'm a man of authority. I live by giving commands. But I'm also a man under authority. When I get a command, I obey it. And that's a good balance. Saul was good at giving orders, but he refused to accept uh, orders from above because he felt there is no one above me. He was not accountable to anyone. And this is the problem with someone who feels they are in total control. There's no one above them to curtail, to curb their uh, attempts to lead. And Saul, by disobeying God, was getting rid of the, um, the boundaries that would have rescued him and rescued Israel from his style of leadership. And so Samuel has to say to him, to obey is better than sacrifice. To make up for the wrong that he had done, Saul did offer some sacrifices to God because perhaps of his conscience. And he said, you know, look, I've obeyed God. But Samuel was aware of what Saul had done. And so he says this important thing. It wasn't that God is a control freak, but he's saying to obey, particularly for someone like you, is far more important than sacrifice. Saul even extended his control over religious life. Now, you may not see this in personal circumstances, but you certainly see it in countries which have a very controlling ruler that they don't only try to control the secular and business world and the economy, but then they try to take control religion as well. Because it says that Saul built an altar to the Lord, making it very clear that this is a very significant step. Saul had exceeded his boundaries of responsibility and was taking over even religion. In fact, he went further and even trying to control Samuel using physical violence. Even in relationships, in family relationships between a husband and wife, it, uh, it sometimes arises. Sometimes when two people are going out together, they're both careful to make a good impression. But then when they get married, they say, now I'm going to be my true self. And their real personality comes out. And if one of them is a controlling type of personality who always insists on getting their way, whenever they are opposed, sometimes their instinct is to lash out with physical violence or in anger. And when you get one person in a relationship like that who's a controller, sometimes the other person just accepts the dominance just for a quiet life. And if you get two people who turn out to be like that, well, it doesn't bear thinking about what that relationship is going to be like. 
Another little detail we get is Saul, having uh, lost his control over the army, was thrashing about looking for different leadership styles to try to retain power. And one of the things that he did was to try to lead by projecting his own public image. It says that he has set up a monument in his own honor. A bit like Stalin, Lenin, and so on, where we see these great dictators, Saddam Hussein, having vast pictures of themselves on the side of buildings, but creating a personality cult. That's another style, another approach to leadership. Uh, and Saul was driven to try to do this. But one of the key things is a little detail that we read three times when Saul is talking to Samuel about the Lord. Saul uses this term, he says, the Lord your God. He doesn't say the Lord my God. Seems to me that Saul did not know God personally. And the text highlights that and shows really that Saul did not have a personal relationship with God. Now, in a way, that's the end of the passage. And those are the reasons why Saul was so totally unsuitable as a king. But God allowed Saul to do that because he wanted Israel to see the wrong type of king before he brought in the right one. So what is the right one? And God has a model for good leadership. And this is important if you ever end up in a position of leadership. Now, it is the subject of the the second part of 1 Samuel, and indeed 2 Samuel, and I wouldn't like to send you away by saying, come back next year to hear the answer. So let me just give you a very brief preview. If the model of a controller, a dictator, is not God's concept of a leader, and remember that God himself has absolute power, what is God's approach to leadership, and what does he want to see in leaders. He wants to see someone with the heart of a shepherd. A shepherd is someone who leads sheep, who looks after them, who develops them, who brings sheep on a journey, who wants them to grow and mature. They, shepherds do not rule by control. They do lead, and they do sometimes have to discipline, bring, and make difficult decisions, bring sheep on difficult journeys but they do it with the heart of a shepherd. And it's interesting that the next king of Israel was King David, and as a boy, he started life as a shepherd. He had a heart for that sort of a job. He learned the skills of being a shepherd, and God knew that this was developing the skills that he would apply when he became king. And the reason for this is not just that it's nice to be a shepherd, but God himself despite having absolute power, is not uh, a tyrant. God himself rules with the heart of a shepherd. If you've been coming to recent mornings, you know we've been going through Psalm 23, which starts with those famous words. This is what King David discovered about God's leadership in his own life. He said, the Lord is my shepherd. He didn't say at this stage, the Lord is my tyrant president, my tyrant king. He is my shepherd. And he talks about the journey that the Lord brought him on in his life. So that is God's model of good leadership. And when we return to 1 Samuel uh, early next year, we'll be looking at how God 
mentors this new King David and how God encourages the qualities of being a shepherd, qualities which we can apply in business, in politics, but most especially in the church, where the church leaders, if we could call them that, so-called church leaders, are called shepherds, explicitly called shepherds. Let's just bring our time to a close in a word of prayer before I hand back to Tony. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are intensely interested in how we manage our lives, how we fulfill our role in society, in family, as bearing responsibility. We remember that this was the very first calling of men and women when you created them to govern in this earth. Father, we pray that everyone here would develop those shepherd-like qualities that the world that they live in would be a better place because they follow the guidance of Scripture. Those of us who are Christians, we thank you that we have experienced your leadership in our lives, the, leader of the, the, the experience of a leader who is caring, sometimes leading us on difficult journeys, but always for our good as a shepherd. So we pray that your word would speak to us and challenge us and change us in Jesus' name. Amen.